What's up guys, it's Ace Komen here with Nathan Brooks and today we're going to talk about Ultra Arrows and a little bit of the creation of this company. So Nathan, how are you doing today? Good buddy, good uh, Good to be with you. It's Monday here and as I was uh, mentioning just briefly before we started this is Mondays are always really busy and hectic because uh, I, have, uh, I have five and a half states that I cover. I'm a territory sales manager for the outdoor group. So the outdoor group for those of those uh, those of your viewers that aren't familiar with the outdoor group, we have Elite Archery, Ultra Arrows, Scott Releases, Custom Bow Equipment Sites, Slick Trick Broadheads. And uh, so we've got a lot of products. And so I have a lot of brands that I represent. And uh, Mondays are always busy just trying to get everybody get their shelves restocked again. And people that come in with blown up bows over the weekend and stuff like that, <laughs> they, they uh, messed up or whatever. So it's interesting the things that come through, but Mondays are usually pretty busy, but I was happy to be able to do this. Yeah. I, uh, and to be honest with you, I was talking to you or talking to Darren Christianberry about you the other day. And we were talking about guys that are young, that are taking the initiative to basically get out there and, and do the work behind the scenes that, I mean, I see that you're aspiring to be a, one of the, one of the best shooters in the world. Obviously that's what I'm, I'm assuming that's what you would like to try and accomplish because I see that. And on the back end of that, I see a lot of work that you're doing outside of just honing your skills. You're making Ace Coleman a brand and that's cool. That's what it has. That's what has to happen in this industry for you to survive. Wow. That's saying a lot to survive. Yeah. Like I think of, uh, I mean, when I think of a brand, I think of like Levi Morgan, Dan McCarthy signature series shafts from Black Eagle. So um, yeah, Ace Coleman has a nice ring to it. Um, it would definitely be nice to put that on a product eventually. But um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. It's, I mean, I see it and I think other people see it too. So that, believe it or not, that's a lot heavier than what you think when it comes to the value of, of Ace Coleman. You know, what value are you to a brand that you choose to shoot or choose to represent? And so when you look at it in its totality, if Ace Coleman makes a podium, great. If Ace Coleman wins, great. But what other effect does that have? Because my background, again, we're just kind of jumping in both feet here. Sure. But my back, my background for you, if you don't know, and for lots of people that don't know, has, has been archery my whole life. 1999, I turned pro. Every year until Levi Morgan came on the scene uh, from 99 to about 2007, I won two or three events as a pro shooter every year, primarily in the 3D world, but I won back-to-back -back indoor national championships, NFAA in 2004-2005. And, uh, and like I said, every year through the Levi Morgan era, I pretty much won two or three events a year and lots of podiums. And then from that point on until 2016, so there was that big of a stretch there where I did not win an event from 2007 to 2016. Lots of podiums, but again, my background and my history comes from competitive archery. And now I've kind of transferred into this role that I'm doing now. But that being said, I've seen a lot of stuff come and go. I've seen a lot of people come and go. Some guys with some super good talent that just couldn't find a way, couldn't mm -hmm. find a way to, and I'm not saying they couldn't find a way to win or be competitive. They found those things, but they couldn't find a way to sustain themselves in this industry to be able to, to, to develop and devote the type of time that it takes 
to develop the type of shooter that they needed to be. So, which is, you've got talent in there that comes in and you've also got dedication and determination. If you want to jump 50 inches, if you want to have a vertical leap of 50 inches, you better have the right genetics. Sure. Cause it's never going to happen if you don't have the right genetics, Sure, but you'll, you'll never be able to jump 50 inches vertically if you don't put the effort into learning how to do it. So, so that's the same thing with archery. Talent is definitely something that is an, and a part of the blueprint to make a great archer. Um, but a bigger part of that is the determination and the effort that it takes to get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's insane. It's easy to get good. It's extremely hard to get great. That extra 5%, 2% more consistently is so hard to do. Like, like my goal is to help people. Like I coach people. My goal is to get them to a 300 level, like on a Vegas face. And then to get them from like 25 X's to like even 28 X's consistently, like it's, it's extremely hard. It, it takes a lot of work and that obviously, but uh, yeah. So um, speaking on, on your career, uh, tell us a little bit about like the craziest, like things you've seen like come and go. Well, that's on the spot there trying to come up with that. Well, I wouldn't say that there is one thing in particular to me that stands out, even though I probably should have that one thing that stands out. But uh, I guess the thing that I see come and go more than anything, in all honesty, is really just the archers. Okay. I mean, I've been doing this for like I said, professionally since 99, I started traveling to all the, all the ASA events, all the IBO and back in the nineties, when I started, there was a Cabela's tour also, they called it North American Bow Hunters Association, NABH. I had that event too, those events that I attended. And then I also shot some of the NFAA. So, I mean, I had typically 20, two to 25 events a year that I was attending through the mid 2000 era. And then NABH went away and they joined with ASA as far as sponsorship and that sort of thing. But what I've seen come and go in that time is really a ton of talented people. And archery is one of those things that it can be done as a profession, but it's really, really difficult to do as a profession. And especially in in the time that I've grown up uh, in the 90s, in all honesty, there was more money in archery in the 90s than there was through the 2000 era and even up to say, maybe right now we're getting pretty close back to where it was, but even still the overall totality of what the actual organizations are putting out there is not as much as what it was in the nineties. Now, why Uh, is that? Well, so the ASA was created by uh, Wayne Pearson and Wayne Pearson owns, and I guess he still does to this day, a show on ESPN called the ultimate sportsman. Ultimate Outdoorsman, Ultimate, something like that. But anyway, back in the 90s, that aired on television and on Sundays, Sunday mornings is when it aired, I think maybe twice. And in the 90s, you got to think television was king. We didn't have this, what we're doing right right now. So television was king. That was the media. And so it was a big deal. Wayne was able to secure a lot of non-endemic sponsorships that had a lot of money. So, I mean, Miller was one of our one of the ASA's primary sponsorships. I want to say 
Budweiser might have been one of the first ones, and then it was Miller, and then Penzl came on board later. And so there was a lot of non-endemic sponsor money that he put back into the into the events and in the payouts. So, for instance, the last year that Wayne owned the ASA, if I have my history correct, I think I think I do. The last year that he owned it, they paid fifty thousand dollars to the shooter of the year and $30,000 to the classic champion in the open pro division and every event. Now this is just money from the event, not sponsorship money and things like this This is just event money. And the event, every event in the pro division paid 10, five, three, I think was the payout. So there was 18,000 in, in top three money that would be paid out. So again, that's where that money came from was the outside sponsorships. And Mike Terrell bought the business and changed it. Now, I got to say this for Mike, the ASA, from what I understand internally, was crumbling. And from what I also understand, the business model really wasn't sustainable. It was doing that, but it wasn't going to sustain. So it was doing those big, you know, he was getting that big sponsorship money. But from what I also understand, uh, again, this is kind of third hand information here. He was not as accountable to those sponsors as they would like, which is why it changed from Budweiser to Miller to Penzl. Had it been very lucrative for those sponsorships, it probably would have never changed. Your title sponsor would have been Penzl and that would have just been it. They would have continued. They would still be a sponsor, but you notice they're not now. So something didn't equate there. Something didn't balance. And so Mike took it over and basically the, the big payouts went away and what happened is the sponsorship money from the archery manufacturers stepped in basically and became the big draw. So Matthews was the leader in that for a long, long time. Uh, there was people that paid more at times, but then Matthews would step up and match it. And so Matthews put a lot into target archery over the year to sustain the target archery that we see now. I mean, I'll just, I'll say it and I've never been a Matthews shooter. But I've always felt like I owed them a lot just because of their presence and what they did. It sustained my my income and my place to actually go to work. I mean, sure. had it not had it not been for them and the effort they put out there, I would have never chased the dream of shooting professionally. So so that's kind of one of those things that uh, I owe them a lot. I mean, for that matter, not just Matthews, there's a ton of manufacturers over the years that have supported the ASA and me personally and things like that. So Matthews, Hoyt, SE, I mean, Elite, obviously now, um, but they didn't come around until like 2012 is when they really kind of showed up on the scene. Elite was started in 2006, but the outdoor group didn't buy until 2011, 2012. So yeah, so there's, there's a long list of people out there that I've never been part of their company that I feel I owe a debt of gratitude towards like Trueball and uh, Scott and I can go on and on and on. Yes, all the, absolutely. All the people that have put a lot of money and time and effort into sustaining tournament archery. And really, I ask myself a lot of times, what the heck for? I mean, I, I love archery, done it my whole life. And so that's really what it boils down to. These people love archery and their passion behind it is evident because they put their pocketbook behind it. That's when you realize somebody's passion for something really fast is when they put their pocketbook behind it. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Dude, I have learned so much about archery in the past 10 minutes, man. Like, mm-hmm. I, I've always wondered why, why we uh, we get that question a lot. So, like, why are there not these non-endemic sponsorships back in the sport? And uh, one thing that a local guy of mine that I get a lot of advice from tells me is basically the amount of shooters, especially in our area, that used to go to tournaments has decreased over the years. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Do you, do you see like a trend where back in the 90s, there was a lot more tournament archers and then it kind of died off and kind of picking back up again? Well, so the very first major archery event that I went to was in 1993. I went to the IBO World Championships. And at that time, the IBO was king of archery events. And there was over 5,000 shooters at Shelbyville, Illinois for the IBO World Championships. And I can't remember because the IBO has a, had a interesting venue. Uh, the way they did things was kind of odd, but you had a trophy. There was a, a trophy segment and then there was a championship segment of, of the IBO. So you could shoot in the trophy classes, which all you was going to get is a trophy, or you could shoot in the championship divisions, which was money. And so I don't remember what the split was, if it was about even 2,500 for this and 2,500 for that, as far as the amount of people were there. But, it, but back in the 90s, again, we go back to what we don't have today, and or let me say that over, what we didn't have in the 90s that we do have today one of those things was obviously this right here, the social media platform. And then the second thing was, was it, it, well, just a lack of information that was easily transferred from place to place. So you got to think everything that was out there. When I, when I was a kid learning how to shoot, I didn't really have anybody coaching me. I read books on how to actually do it. Oh, it's weird, but I, I, I said, what's a I, book? Yeah, yeah, what's a book, right? So I literally subscribed to... 3D and Target Archery Magazine. All right. So that's been gone for 20 plus years. And I would read articles written by Randy Ulmer, yeah. Randy Chappell, some of those guys that were very high caliber shooters back in that time. Bobby Ketcher, who, again, this is kind of one of those things for how old are you? Ace 20? 22. 19? 22? Heck, I didn't know. But I knew you were young. Probably, I don't know. Have you ever even heard of Bobby Ketcher? Not remotely. See, man. And, and Bobby, which, See if I can spin this around. See that? See that poster right there? I do. That Hoyt poster. So that's me on the right. Eric Griggs next to me, Bobby Ketcher, and Tony Taza. So that was in 2001. So Bobby was fairly local to me. He was about a, it's about two hour drive from my house to his. And he taught me so much. Bobby was an amazing shooter, understood archery really, really well. In the 90s, he was dominant. I mean, he was just awesome. And uh, he kept shooting through the mid-2000 era and then kind of went on to, he owns a, an appraisal business now, a big uh, company that he manages in Southeast Oklahoma and uh, does a great job. But, but yeah. These guys were instrumental in everything that I learned. And like I said, learned them from books. So as far as the the decline of archers, I would say yes, in some respects. Nationally, I think we have more that show up. But the thing is, it's almost like the local stuff has died. Because locally, back in the 90s, literally, I, I mean, I lived at home in the early 90s with my dad. And we would shoot sometimes three or four events on a weekend and never drive any further than an hour from our house. 
And so there was 3D events everywhere. I mean, they was now, just on it. Just to clarify, where do you live? Like, what's the general vicinity? So I live right on the Arkansas-Oklahoma line. Like, if you were looking at the map north and south, basically right in the middle of Oklahoma, right on the Arkansas line. Okay. And so that's that's where I grew up. I'm only... 20 something miles from where the, the home that I grew up in. So I grew up in Oklahoma. I live in Arkansas now, but I mean, it's right there. So um, yeah, I mean, there, there was, there was tons of archery everywhere. I mean, that's like, in my head, that's the middle of nowhere. And you said that there was like four shoots a weekend within an hour drive of your house. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and, and back then, in all honesty, it, I mean, there was way more than that. That's just what would be shooting on a weekend. I mean, so, so, I mean, if I shot four events, we'd shoot somewhere Saturday morning, Saturday evening, sometimes Sunday morning, sometimes Sunday evening, but most of the time it was one on Sunday because we'd go after church and then we'd shoot one or two on Saturdays. Occasionally we would shoot four, but like I said, most of the time it was three. And I mean, we could have on those weekends, we probably could pick numerous places we wanted to go. So it was just a matter of what do you really want to go shoot? But like I said, locally and maybe even statewide or regionally, I think there's a lot less of people that are actually doing it because I say this because number one, in the late nineties, I, I had a range myself and we averaged when I was over in Oklahoma, I operated this range on my brother's property. And when we were there, I would average a hundred shooters a day which I would typically only have the event one day and it'd be a shotgun start and I'd have five people per target because it was just 20 targets and I had a hundred people on the range. And so that was in the late nineties and I quit doing it in the mid to late two thousands because the numbers had dropped to about 35 or 40 a weekend. So it, 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 I don't know if it's just, it got to the point where people found other things to do or if it was just to the point where what I see a lot of people do is they reach a plateau in their own shooting level and then they quit. And they'll keep hunting, but they, they just quit shooting and competing because they get to this point where they reach and they feel like they can't go any further. So they just stop. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what year did the, the non-endemic sponsorships kind of fall off? So I want to say that was right around 97 or 98. I do know 99 was the first year that I shot pro. And I think that was the second year that Mike Terrell owned the ASA. It might've been the first full year that he owned it, like just him personally, because I think it was kind of a, I don't think it was a just here it is, you take over sort of thing. It was kind of a slower transition. I'm like with Josh that owns ASA right now, yeah, he, Mike is still there, is still part of it. And he's bought, he bought the ASA, what, two years ago, something like that, maybe two, three. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see some of that come back, some of those non-endemics and things like that, because Josh kind of has a, a desire to see the tournament archery itself pay more money and that sort of thing. I mean, it's a business first. Sure. It's got to make it, make it operate and be functional. But I think he has a vision that, and, and I, I 100% mean no disrespect to Mike because Mike has done a phenomenal job over the years. Absolutely. And, and Mike made that business what it is now. I mean, had he not stepped in, like I said, I think it was crumbling internally, even though Wayne Pearson started it and, you know, took it to this level just 
what we think was crazy high. Maybe it really wasn't. It didn't have enough foundation underneath it. It was crumbling, you know, and Mike built that foundation up again. He has a following of people that will they travel to the ASAs regardless where it is. And, and he does a really good, has done a really good job over the years, just keeping people happy. And so it's grown every year. It seems like it gets a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, not a ton, but just a little bit of sustainable growth. And uh, with what Josh and his, his team is doing now, and then you look at what Cam has done for the ASA as far as bringing it to a, uh, a national level media attention sort of thing that's been really good for the ASA. So it's got a bright future ahead of it. I think, I think it looks better than it's ever looked as far as the quick foreseeable future of what it's going to do. I'm not worried about it. Let me just put it that way. If, If five or six years ago, if Mike Terrell unfortunately had something happen to him, cardiac arrest or, you know, something like that, if he passed, because I mean, hey, that what happens every day, right? Somebody does. Somebody passes away unexpectedly. If something like that had happened to Mike, I don't know what had happened to the ASA because he was the ASA. And so, if that had happened, it's like there's no governing body that's taking care of it. Like the ATA as an organization has no effect whatsoever on the ASA organization. So. It's not like they come in with their money to help sustain it. It's not a it's not a archery funded platform. It's a business. So right. And and the IBO is a little different because the IBO is set up as a they have a board. Brian Markham runs it. I mean, if something like that happened to Brian, the IBO would still function. They have a plan in place that it would continue working. So and then NFA is like that as well. They would continue to work, but the ASA. We don't know what would have happened to the ASA had something happened to Mike. So I, I think the contingents, the way it's set up now, I, I'm I'm very confident in what the ASA can do moving forward. That's actually not a bad thing for them to do. I don't know if they're doing that now or have thought about it, but uh, having a board or just something in place where if the worst case scenario was to happen, things would still be okay. So. Yeah. And like I said, I, I, I don't know what Josh has implemented there. I'm sure there's, I'm sure he's thought of that. Josh is a very cerebral person. I think he, he's definitely thinking these things through very well. And so, yeah, I I got a lot of confidence in Josh. For sure. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, tell us a little bit about this new arrow company. So ultra, ultra arrows, that's a L. T-R-A, something that has been a few years in the works for the, the outdoor group. First off, when you think about arrows, or at least me personally, when I think about arrows, I think about all the junk that I've shot over the years of different brands that I've had that caused me tons of heartache and tons of time of trying to figure out, is this Mississippi, the, the arrows that I'm shooting? And so uh, I'm not going to name any brand specific, uh, just for the simple fact that I do appreciate their support of me over the past. But I will say there is some things out there that is that are bad, uh, very bad arrows. It's good arrows make me smile. Yeah, uh, but but the bad arrows, the bad junk, and what here's what I mean by that too. You can take an arrow and the weight of it be eight grains per inch, and you can take another one that weighs eight grains per inch, and they can be the same diameter, and you can make them look identical, but they can have a tremendously different flex rate, and they can have a tremendously different 360-degree spine change as well. So let's just say you have an arrow that's a 
that's a 400 spine arrow and you have uh, two arrows that are supposed to be 400 spine arrows and they both are. Let's say they both max out at 400 spine, but what's the weakest part of that arrow? Is it 410? Is it 405? Is it 430? I had some arrows that had 35 and 40 thousandths difference in the spine, 360 degrees when checking them. And I mean, that's insane. I mean, so just think about shooting. If you had some 350 spine arrows and some 300 spine arrows and you mixed them all together and you're trying to be accurate with that. Yeah, that's terrible. That's that's really what. Yeah. And that's how it was. So when I think of arrows, 30 something years now into this for me. As a, as a shooter in 20-something years as a professional, I think of the time wasted on bad arrows that it took so much time to figure out what was going on when I couldn't be working on honing my craft on me. I'm having to sort through my equipment. And so that being said, the engineers with Ultra had an idea in mind that they wanted to build an arrow that's what they call spineless. So no high side, no low side, basically an arrow that 360 degrees around is going to be whatever we say it is. If it's 300 spine, it's 300 spine all the way around. Can that be done? So that was the question. Can we build arrows like this? Can you build enough of them in production? Is this one thing to build one? Anybody can build one, but can you build enough of them in production to be consistent where you can sell it that way. And so that was part of the quest that they were on. Like, Hey, we got to figure this out. Long story short, I don't understand all the ins and outs of how the arrows are built, but I do understand how they shoot and what it takes to be a good arrow. So they have accomplished spineless arrow technology, which I think is freaking awesome because what that does is it number one, it allows me to do what I need to do, which is work on me, not on, my equipment. I want to set it up and I want to forget about it and then just go out here. And the thing that changes all the time is right here and me in this body. You'll hear people say, wouldn't it be great if I could just draw a bow back and hold it like this every shot? Well, if you wake up one day and you feel tired and the next day you wake up and you feel energized, what was the difference? I don't know. Who really knows? But you have those days, right? I mean, you you have days where you feel good. You have days where you feel bad. And your body and your mind constantly change. The equipment shouldn't. And so that's what you have to work on all the time is you. And so with the equipment being an ever constant thing, or at least you hope it's an ever constant thing, a good arrow will make that life even that much easier. So you can just do what you need to do all the time. And you don't have to spend all your time working on tuning these arrows, getting this right. If you're going from, so back in the day, since I've shared so much already back in the day, information, aluminum arrows were it. And the reason why is you can take an aluminum arrow and it's super, super easy to build a, I say super easy, not for me, but for Easton, it was super easy to build a consistent arrow. And when they would build that arrow, you can actually look at aluminum. If you, if what you're looking at, you can see it and you can see where the weld line is at on the aluminum shaft. So you could pretty much put your cock vein on that, on that weld every time. And that would be the stiff side of the shaft. And it 360 degrees, as long as the arrow was straight on 360 degrees, you'd only see a change in spine of maybe one, two, at most, maybe three thousandths in the actual spine. So if you had a 400 spine arrow, it might be at worst 403 thousandths, which is extremely 
extremely accurate from arrow to arrow to arrow to arrow. And that's why aluminum was so great. And it's still great just because it's so consistent. So the biggest thing with aluminums is number one, does my knock fit good? Because you've got, that's the next part of the arrow build is you got to have components that are perfectly straight. So if you put a bushing in a shaft and that bushing doesn't sit perfectly straight, I don't care how good that arrow is, that arrow is worthless if that knock yes. is straight. And, and I think a lot of people say, well, we knock tune these arrows. If they're using a bushing in those arrows, sometimes what they're doing is they're just having to get the knock straight because you can rotate it sometimes and it actually just straightens out. And that doesn't mean that it's knock tuned in the aspect of the dynamic spine is equal from arrow to arrow to arrow to arrow. It just means that it finally worked out when they got their knock straight. So um, that's wow. Yeah, I saw a lot of that back with aluminum arrows. Sure. Not as much today with the carbon because number one, the bushings themselves that they use that go in the carbon shafts are typically a lot longer than what they used to use for the aluminum. And you have a lot less inconsistent components. So that part of arrow building has gotten better over time too. So, but yeah, I, I kind of went a long way around to talk about how this arrow company was formed and I personally didn't have anything to do with the forming of this company. It was really all the outdoor group and uh, their direction behind it. But I'd like to think that we've had a little bit of influence on what they were wanting to build and why. And so right, right, right now we, we have a very small offering for an assortment of target shafts, basically 23s and 27s. In the future, we've got more things coming, uh, but we're really an upside start arrow com- company. Um, definitely not something that I would say, oh yeah, we've got years of history in this. No, well, we just started, um, but we do have years of experience behind us. So, so I think that's going to equate to something good down the road. And these arrows already, from what I've seen, we put them in a lot of shooters hands. They're really shooting them well. So um, I'm excited yeah. about that with very little effort. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm curious to see how like, if you can't tell me, don't, but how do you really make an arrow seamless where it um, has a full 360 degree spine? Well, I mean, honestly, I, it's, it's what I said before. I, I don't really know how they build them. I know what we're looking for. And that's why, I mean, I don't, these, these degrees back here, these are <laughs> degrees. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Those are just, right. Um, right. honestly, I don't know how they build them. I really don't. It intrigues me, but there's things that I've learned over the, over my, my career is like, there's certain things I know I can have influence on. And there's certain things I know I can't have influence on. And I yeah. think the building of arrows is probably one of those things I can't have influence on. Right. So, so I don't really jump into that too much. I can definitely help in what they're looking for, but I, I really don't know. Ace. It's one of those things that I, I would like to say, I know how they can do it, but I don't, I know that when I put them on my tester yeah. and I'm, and I'm looking at it and I'm checking that, the, that three, 360 spine, I've checked a lot of our arrows and I'm super impressed with what I see. I mean, awesome. we're talking, we're talking to, I mean, those things I can read, those things I can see. And uh, especially when it comes to coming in here and, and putting them through the test dynamically, not so much just what that looks like on a tester, because for years I have been wholeheartedly against this where these companies spine a line okay. because all that's doing is saying statically, this is the heavy part. Of, this is the stiff part of the spine statically. It's not saying anything about 
the actual dynamic reaction of the arrow when it shoots. So here's where that comes into play. So if you've taken, so this is an arrow and let's just say, we'll go to the top. We'll say, this is your stiff side right here, the, the high side. And that's a, let's just say this is a 300 spine. All right. If you rotate this arrow on a tester and you get to right here and it drops down from a 300 and then it goes to 315 and then it's back to like 308, 305, or 305, 302, and it back appears 300, there's your stiff side. And then just a little bit, boom, it drops off again. You, you see that your high side's here and your low side's here. So that's not 180 degree across from each other. On a lunar arrow, it's always 180 degrees across. That's where we go back to being why aluminum is so good. So the next arrow that's built, this might be your high side again, but then the stiff, the weak side might be all the way down here. Right. Instead of it being right here. So that's why there's a difference in how these arrows actually react dynamically versus statically. So just because you flex it right here and okay, flex down, let's mark that. That's our, that's our stiff side or that's our weak side. That's our consistent side that we're marking. When you put it through a bow, because of the distance from the high side to the low side, that may totally change the way that arrow actually flexes as it comes out of the bow. So you really need to test. You need to test the arrow dynamically, not statically. So right. they can say this is spinal line, and here's the stiff side, and it's where you want to flex it, man. And maybe that's better than not doing it that way. But you had a one in three chance of getting it that way anyway when you fletched it. If you use three fletches, and if you use four, you got a one in four chance. So it keeps getting better the more fletching you put on there. It's finding a stiff side, so you can play with that rotationally and and wind up getting it right pretty easily. Instead of just saying this is the, this is where I'm going with this spinal line, it's a marketing tool. Is basically what I'm trying to say is okay. if you're going by the spinal line, it's it's a marketing tool. Testing a lot. It's a bold statement. I like it. So you have the high side. Let's just say it's on top. Then the low side. Let's say it's like right here. Mm -hmm. So have you tested to see like if maybe right here or over here, kind of in between the high and low side, is where it most likely will perform so that being said yes i have checked that a lot and there's there's really no exact consistency because it really depends on how big a range you have from your high side and your low side and where that's located so let's just say you have an arrow that has a ten thousandths difference on high side and low side and it's a third of the shaft like you just showed from top to bottom. The next arrow might be a quarter of the shaft, but there's only a difference of five thousandths instead of ten thousandths. And so the flex point might have actually, it might be over on the other side of the arrow, as opposed to somewhere between the high side and the, the like you were saying, it's down so far as like the one third side. So no, to answer your question, there is nothing that you can measure and say it's always going to come out in this range. And it's so much easier really to just go shoot them. Because this, the other component to that is when you put fletching on the arrow, I mean, we all know what happens when you add weight to something, it changes the spine and where it wants to flex. So like the test you've seen with bear shaft shooting where they take tape and wrap it around the back of the arrow to kind of duplicate the weight of the veins. That's helpful because it helps get that weight ratio correct and it helps that arrow flex the way it's supposed to flex or the flex the way it will flex when you got fletching on the arrow. So, so those are all things that still, 
I don't know there's an exact science to it, you know, because I think you can get by with a lot of different things. That being said, I've spent a lot of time over the years with a hooter shooter and making arrows shoot exactly the same out of a hooter shooter, which is a feat in itself, honestly, um, because a hooter shooter is a, a great tool, but it's really for an individual to get all that to work just right. You have to go through a lot of work to make it work. And it's amazing how you can take some pretty bad arrows and still make them hit in the same spot. So I don't think it's as critical as we might want to make it out to be as far as all this aligning and everything that we talk about. But if it's there, if it's a, I I guess what I would say as a professional shooter, if it is a part of the equation that helps you be more confident in your equipment and what you're doing, then it's helpful to do it. If that, if that puts you over that next level in confidence, then take that extra step and do it. But I would say this, I won't name a name here, uh, but I know a guy that went, he was sponsored by Easton and they told him that we have these experimental arrows. We want you to fly out here and test these arrows. And this was back in the 2000 era. And so he went to Salt Lake. They fletched the arrows up for him. They didn't have any labels on them or anything. Told him what he wanted for weights, that sort of stuff. He got the arrows all tuned up and shot what would have been a Frida World record in practice with these arrows. Come to find out all they were was crooked ACEs. And they were trying to just determine, does it really matter? And so he didn't know. He just went and shot the arrows and did his part. And because he did his part so well, and he's that good of an archer, he shot a world, what would have been a world record, feet a world record with crooked arrows. So now how crooked? That's the question. How crooked were these? Are these arrows just like arrows that Easton would have thrown away and not put it in a batch because they didn't meet the 3000 straightness level or whatever that they supposedly needed to be? I don't know. But I thought that was a very interesting thing that it's almost like the what do they call that the uh oh my gosh my mind is slipping me what do they call that effect when you i'm gonna have to just come back to you it's totally slipped my mind what i was trying to say there yeah yeah uh, placebo placebo that's the one right there the placebo that's exactly yeah yeah but yeah so so it's kind of like that I mean, Mm -hmm. he thought he was getting something that was so good. He had zero expectations as to how good he was going to shoot it. He just went and did his job. And with with no thought of this is going to be great or bad or whatever, just here they are. Go shoot them and let's see what happens. And boom, there it is. Incredible. So, wow, that just goes to show like if like there is a lot of minutia, it's like, are we do we have to make it so consistent? Like there, there is like a level of the better the arrow build, the more expensive it is to manufacture. Your margins go down, and then uh, you can't keep making more products and selling them at the rate you're trying to. And you might have to up the price point or something like that. But so, are you saying with these new arrows that you don't have to tune them? You can spin them however you want. And they're just going to pretty much fly the same. Well, I would that. To make that claim across the board with all the arrows, I think would be reckless. Sure. But but I would say that this, so far, what I've tested of what we're doing, it's the easiest all-carbon arrows I have ever messed with as far as getting them exactly the same. And I got to say, I mean, I come from my last arrow contract was Gold Tip. Gold Tip makes great products. I'm, I'm here to tell you, Gold Tip has great products. I, I probably had some of the easiest arrow setups I've ever had with Gold Tip. 
And I'm every bit as pleased with these ultra arrows as I was with gold tip and to the point of if, and I'm not saying it because it's one versus the other, I would seriously recommend anyone looking for the best arrow experience that they've had as far as setting up these arrows. And especially with hunting shafts, because to me, that's really where this comes in. All this arrow tuning and all this sort of stuff, you can make an arrow that doesn't have a winged tip on it. In other words, if you're just shooting a field point or a target point, you can make that thing so shoot very easily and have a bunch of them be consistent. But when you put blades on the end of that arrow and it's trying to overcome what the fletching are doing on the back, your arrow flex is so much more critical at that point than, than it was without that broadhead on there. Because now, all right, so think about this. If you have two arrows and they're supposedly both the exact same and you fire one and dynamically arrow number one is flexing straight up. The, the flex point is straight up on the arrow and you have a broadhead on the front and it comes out of the bow and it flexes up. It doesn't have to flex up high, but just enough that when it flexes up, the broadhead itself is actually pointing down just a little bit. So think about how much wind those blades are catching now as the broadhead points down. All right. So as it points down just a little bit, it starts catching the wind. So now the fletching on the back end have to work that much harder to straighten everything up and out as it goes out of the bow. You take the next arrow that flexes where this arrow was flexing, flexing I said perfectly straight up. So I'm going to say 12 o'clock that it flexed. You take the next arrow and it flexes at one o'clock. All right. So even though it's almost perfectly straight up, if it's one o'clock instead of 12 o'clock, when you get to 50 yards, you're going to see a difference in where that arrow hit. And that's how it's so much more important to get the flex exactly the same on your hunting arrows to have each arrow do the exact same thing versus a target arrow, because a target arrow can easily overcome that with fletching. Now, that little bit of inconsistency in its flex, it's going to straighten right out and you probably will never be able to shoot good enough to know the difference. But I can promise you, you put a broadhead on the front of it, you'll see it you'll see a difference fast. And so that's why it's such a major undertaking to get fixed blade broadheads on multiple arrows shooting the exact same at any kind of distance beyond 50 yards. It's, it's just tough. And then you throw in the, in the fact that uh, you're shoot if you're shooting any kind of speed, if you're trying to shoot 300 feet per second, that's another thing mm-hmm. with all those with those broadheads on the front. So it's sure. a challenge. I can imagine. So for someone setting up their arrows, like a normal arrow versus like one of the new ultra arrows, would you tell them to set them up any differently or kind of go through the same process? I would go through the same process. The, the okay. difference is, is with the ultra arrows, you'll be done really quick. Whereas with brand X, you're going to be there a while because I've done it. I've done it for a long time. Now, again, I mean, I just praised gold tip a few minutes ago. You won't spend a long time with the gold tip shafts because they seem like they're pretty good. And I'm not going to speak for all the rest of them because it's been a long time since I've played with Easton arrows. I mean, I hadn't shot Easton arrow since 2016 and that's been quite a few years and go way back to carbon express. It's been a long time since I've shot those. So I'm not going to speak to any of those, but I'll tell you that that aluminum arrows, I know that hadn't changed 
in 30 plus years. And those things are going to be great. Arrow for arrow for arrow. I still see that quality and know that it's there. And uh, as far as everyone else's carbon arrows, it's, I mean, I, I really can't speak to all of them, but I see, I have, so I have a shop here at my house, um, not an open shop to the public. I just mean like I have an indoor shooting range here at my house. This is, I'm in my office right now, but I have a shop here at the house and I got a lot of friends that come over and shoot and they shoot a little bit of everything. So I get to see all the different brands. I get to see all the different products work and function outside of what I use and, and the products that support me and that sort of thing or the brands that support me. But so I get to see all that. And when it comes to the arrows, like I said, these are, these are easy, easy shooting arrows. Awesome, man. So basically you're still not tuning these arrows. Yeah. Because for, first off, when it comes to that, you, you still have components that go in the shafts. So if you're going to shoot a bushing, you need to make sure that the bushing and everything is square and you got to get everything lined up and the knock's got to be perfectly straight. So you still have components that go in. I tell you what is really easy for me is when I, when I use the 246 arrows, the smaller hunting arrows, man, those are easy because the knock just straight into the shaft. They're perfectly straight. It's so easy setting those up. I went on an antelope hunt this year. And I mean, I, every year I do this, I side in all the way out to 130 yards. And it's probably the easiest setup I've ever had in my life this year, shooting a, the Elite Carbon Era. And I had the 300 spine Ultra 246s. I fletched up a dozen arrows. And in a matter of one evening of no wind, I was able to determine that I got a dozen arrows that all freaking shot awesome. Wow. And that's what, what brought heads on. And it didn't take me long at all to figure that out. So I went through the same steps. I shot them all through paper, made sure they all tore the exact same exact same way. Matter of fact, and if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty sure I do, I only turned one knock in an arrow. And who knows if that was just knock wasn't very straight or if that was the actual shaft itself. I don't know, but I turned one and then got them all fletched up. And then went from that, I go straight out to shooting to see how the results actually looked like. And uh, when I do broadheads, it's a little different. It's a different step. It's pretty, um, what I would say, in depth in trying to make sure that that broadhead works with that arrow and that it's not a broadhead issue and it's not an arrow issue when I do see an issue. But yeah, just working on finding the best shooting location for that particular uh, rotation in the knock using paper plates, number in the paper plate, the arrow number that it is, and it's knock rotation. And then so you can take those four paper plates after you, if you're shooting a four fletch, you can take them four paper plates after you've shot a lot and lay them across the table here and say, okay, at this rotation, at, at 12 o'clock, they all seem to group really close to the dot at three o'clock, they are all grouped low left at six o'clock. They all grouped high, right. And at nine o'clock, they grouped high left. So you, then you can do that arrow for arrow for arrow for arrow. And once you do them all, then you can say, okay, I like this arrow in this location. I like this arrow in this location, your knock rotation. And then you can figure that out per arrow, what you want and how to sort them all where you got them shooting as good as you can possibly get them shooting from one arrow to the next. But it's a complicated, long process. It sounds extremely long-winded. So like you're shooting, you're shooting all the arrows bare shaft through paper, getting the rotation if necessary, then fletching them. Then are you shooting a paper plate with a hooter shooter? I do all the paper plate shooting. Okay. And you test, like if you have four veins, if you're shooting four veins, you, you just test one, two, three, four, the, and then and then you just make a decision 
based upon like how the whole setup of arrows shoots, you kind of see where most of them are grouping and then you make a decision yeah. from there. And you shoot one broadhead on one arrow. Okay. You don't change it. You don't, you don't rotate that. Now, if that arrow never performs for you, you can put a different broadhead on it and see if it, if a broadhead made a difference. So you're swapping the broadhead to every single arrow. No, no, no. No, you, you put one broadhead on that arrow and it stays on that arrow. Okay. It, wow. It's a sign. It's a sign to that arrow, basically. Sure. You don't, you don't change it. So mm -hmm. with, with like target shafts, would you do the same thing for the paper plate test? You could. Honestly, you definitely could. I, I, I don't see that it's that in depth, though. I mean, I with 3D, I'm shooting out to 50 yards. Right. It's not very far. And it's really not very far with just a target point. Right. So you could do that. I don't think that it's as necessary for that as it is for for hunting shafts, because like I said, you're changing the whole dynamic of that arrow when you put that point on the front that's got wings on it. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it acts so much different. Yeah. So it's a lot more in-depth process, I think. And especially if you're planning on shooting at any distance, like with antelope or pronghorn, I mean, not that you should do it, but it's very possible that you can easily shoot a hundred yards at one uh, if the conditions are right. I mean, obviously I don't do that if the wind is wrong or whatever. I mean, you got to get, you got to get all the, all the things lined up, right? Make sure yeah. everything is good, but you can easily make that shot. You know, or I mean, I say easily, you can make that shot. It's a shot that is a deadly lethal shot and I've seen it happen and I've done it. So with pronghorn, it's wide open. And if you just do spot and stalk, it can be a long shot. So I want to know that I've done the best I possibly can with each arrow. And so my whitetail hunting that I do is much more up close and personal because I do that here in the mountains here in Arkansas and Oklahoma. And it's, I don't have that opportunity for a long shot typically, but. Right. Trees. You actually have trees. Yes. Trees. Yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely on my bucket list to go out West and get me some pronghorn within the next year or so. So when I set up my hunting arrows, I'm going to make sure that the bro with the broadhead on there, they're going to be shooting good. Now, as far as with expandables, would you do the same thing? Yeah, for sure. Because again, you notice, and I, I do that at a distance, at a decent distance. Like I, I try and do it at least 80 yards. Okay. With, fixed, with fixed blade heads, I can do this at 50. Because number one, I know that even the best tuned fixed blade broadhead, the best tuned set of arrows, I'm still limiting my shooting distance to probably 80 yards with fixed blade heads. Because all it takes is a two mile wind from left to right crosswind and you'll miss six inches yeah it's just it's crazy what that little bit of breeze will do to a fixed blade head versus a mechanical but yes you can still see the same with a mechanical because most of the mechanicals i use either they have some some sort of wing that sticks out on them a little bit that catches when when it hits the hide like a the raptor trick that i shoot it's it's built like a swacker or a sever or any of those heads that are have that the blade retention that is uh, held in and you got the two little wings that just pop out and so uh, you still have something on the front of that arrow that's trying to guide or trying to overcome the fletching on the back. So yeah, I would still do it with those. Awesome, man. So if people want to find your arrows, how do they do it? Well, we are getting into the dealerships more and more. Um, so your local dealer would be the first place to go to. Uh, we do sell the shafts 
actually online at ultraarrows.com. That being said, you won't get them cut. You won't have them. There's the, the options aren't very great there for you. So I would go to the local dealer is the, is the best option for that at this point, for sure. Awesome. So uh, Nathan, where can people find you on social media? Well, if they're looking, they'd have to look pretty hard because I don't do as much of that as I used to. But uh, Nathan Brooks Archery on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, man, if somebody needs to email me or something like that, uh, my work email is nbrooks at toglc.com. Perfect. Well, Nathan, I'm sure you're going to make a lot of hunters that are shooting fixed blades, especially have a more ethical hunt, especially if they're shooting like out in the open field at a pronghorn. So I appreciate all this information. And um, we'll definitely see you in the future. Cool. Sounds good. I appreciate it. It's been fun.